This morning, we're going to continue our series on Maranatha. Has anyone made a shirt yet? I mean, you should make a shirt because if you want, you know, there's all sorts of shirts around here. I don't understand half of them. But if you just put a word like Maranatha on the front of your shirt and you do it real cool, artistic-like, people will want it. They don't even know what it means. And then they're just walking around and saying, come, Lord Jesus. And they don't even know them, and that's great. And then you say, hey, do you know what your shirt means? So maybe someone will come up with a cool idea to sell shirts, and um, maybe we can get some people saved in the kingdom by wearing those shirts. I'll wear one if you, buy, if you make one. Um, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. That's what we're going after. That's what we're crying out for. And um, I started this series last week. If you, didn't, if you weren't here, we'd love for you to go back and, and listen to it and um, we kind of unpacked uh, this idea by looking through the prophet Isaiah, and we are intentionally looking at some of the Old Testament prophets and how they see the first and second coming of Christ in this Advent season, and kind of how that correlates to the New Testament. So we looked at Isaiah last week, just a portion of Isaiah, and today we're going to be looking at Jeremiah. And um, the prophet Jeremiah, it's important, this book of the Bible, because his words have um, so, uh, such a profound impact on the state of not only what Israel and Judah was experiencing, but really to what they would experience even in the times of Christ. So we'll get to that in just a little bit, and hopefully you'll see the connection to us modern day. Now to understand the book of Jeremiah and his message of judgment, um, you need to understand he was speaking against Judah, right? Remember, there was the 12 tribes. They had a big division. You had the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom were the 10 tribes, and the southern kingdom was Judah, was predominant down there. And so he was primarily speaking to them. And remember that the prophecies were said that in the line of Judah, in the line of David, will come the future king, will come the king that will bring peace, that will restore all things, make things new, the Messiah. So they knew that was coming through the line of Judah, through all of its ups and downs. And so here Jeremiah is prophesying to them. And he was sent as a prophet to speak to the king, as many of the prophets were, speaking to the leadership of the nation, hoping they would respond in turn and change their ways to be in alignment with God. Well, <clears throat> Jeremiah, we're going to look at this passage here in chapter 7, and we'll look at a few more. But in chapter 7, Jeremiah is literally at the temple that they had built, right? So excited about building. He's at the temple, and he's delivering this message, which is pretty condemning, okay? And he's delivering it from the temple because this is the very place where they uh, carried out their false religion and their idolatrous practices, so it's fitting that from this very place, he's speaking against them, knowing what they were doing in their day. And the main things you'll see is that literally, although they worshiped God and had their temple, um, but all the while, the immigrant and the orphan, the widow were suffering in their midst. There wasn't justice or righteousness being done in the land. And these people were to be exposed and to be exposed to their own vulnerability by him sharing this message there at the temple, the very place that they saw as their refuge, as their safety net, as their protection, okay? So Jeremiah, when he speaks this message, he's speaking between the fall of the Assyrian Empire, if you got your history, okay? Assyrians, right? Bad dudes, and the Babylonians, other bad dudes. 
And this falls right in between it. But they were actually used as instruments in God's judgment against his own people when they rebelled against him. So right in between the Assyrian Empire and Babylon Empire is when this time period is. And, um, and, you know, again, when you talk about the temple, you have to understand that they believed so much that if they got this building built, then that was the staple that said, we are invincible. That we are literally invincible. Why? Because they thought this is the place where God dwells. And if God dwells in that temple, who can come against us? We've got the big man in the temple, so bring it on, right? So they put all their hope in having this temple. Meanwhile, they kind of ignored everything it was to actually follow God. They just wanted to have the temple for God. Now, the dwelling place for God, real, real quickly, okay, a quick recap. The tabernacle was built in 1445 B.C., the tabernacle was more or less this very large tent, very ornate, very detailed instructions. But when they were traveling around the wilderness, didn't have a home, they had this tabernacle and they would set it up. They could put it up, they could break it down, move on to the next spot, put it up and break it down again. This is the dwelling place of God. Now, years later, about 500 years later, they finally get in the promised land. They set up shop in Jerusalem and they build Solomon's temple, as it's called. It was built around 960 B.C., and this temple was there standing at the time that Jeremiah was at Solomon's temple delivering this message. Now, the people could reason also that they were under this divine protection because of God's covenant with David. He said in 2 Samuel 7, promising that his kingdom and his throne would be established forever. Therefore, this temple became kind of a false assurance of God's protective power. More or less, they thought they were untouchable. So Jeremiah, with all this in mind, steps forward and speaks this message to the people. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods, to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Speaking of the promised land, Israel, this territory, this place they've been hoping for, right? God delivered it for them. They are there. And he's saying, you guys have a chance right now to turn or else you and this land will be over. You will not only be out of this land, but many of you will die. You will be conquered and you will be whisked away. Now, that's not a popular message. There probably was a lot of people like, Jeremiah, like that guy. Jeremiah for president, right? No, it was like, boo, apples, tomatoes, pomegranates, whatever they had, right? I mean, you know they were heckling him because he was a prophet. Prophets always got heckled. Note. Don't heckle the prophet. Does not go well for you. 
right? But they were, they didn't listen to him. And he shares a message similar to this over and over. So here's the issue, right? They were so preoccupied with the temple rituals and practices, yet giving very little concern to actually the commands from God, the Ten Commandments, the ethical issues going on in their day. Namely, the most vulnerable people in their midst, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, they were suffering in their midst. So the changes that God wanted to see in the people that would allow them to live in the land peacefully included. The people were not to oppress the helpless in society. They were not to shed innocent blood. And by the way, stop the idolatry. Quit going after false gods. That was it. It was like this wish list of three things. If you'll just stop this stuff, I will hold off the Babylonian empire that's coming your way. Now, in Jeremiah's view, nothing short of a radical reformation, spiritual renewal was going was, was gonna to deter God from what was going to happen. It had to be a complete national repentance, down our knees, let's turn it over, call it a great awakening, so to speak. That's what he was hoping for and delivering this message for. Because if not, then in God's fulfillment of his own covenant, which was in Deuteronomy 28, saying, more or less, you go against me, then you will not be in the land. You will be exiled from the land and from God's presence. Well, if this very temple that Jeremiah is delivering this message from was the place of refuge for them and their protection, then it's interesting that God would also say to them, if that's where you're going to put all your hope, then I'll destroy it. Now, we'll fast forward just to tell you where this all goes if you don't know. Literally, at the very end of Jeremiah, you read through, I think it's chapter 52 or 51, it's when the Babylonians come in and destroy the temple, haul everybody off. So just so you know, they don't repent. I know it's, it's a bad ending. I know it's Christmas, but that's just what happens. They don't. They end up going in their wicked ways. So eventually, the temple is destroyed. But with these warnings from Jeremiah, as the prophet, they despised him in many ways, and they persisted in their sin. It's kind of like when someone comes to you close, a friend who's maybe lived a little longer, a mentor, and says, hey, man, you got to trust me. you got to stop that. And you're like, dude, no. Cut off my case, right? Or we will dog those people as maybe trying to be holier than thou or just mind your own business, you know? But you have to understand, Jeremiah, he was a man after God's heart. He was committed. The Lord chose him as an instrument to speak these words. And so whether you like the person or not, personality-wise, he didn't probably have a lot of friends. Most Old Testament prophets did not have a big friend bank. They, They did some crazy stuff that's like, Whoa, you know, it's like, that's kind of odd, right? But, but God's not interested in just having the nice, neat little prophets that everybody's cozied up to. He was like, they're going to say what needs to be said. And so for us in our personal lives, just a quick note, when someone comes to you and they're like, hey, man, I see this in your life. Hey, I need to let you know. Hey, have you noticed this? Our typical reaction, all of us, is to like buck up. What do you know? You don't know what it's like. You haven't been there. 
That's, it's just like, oh my gosh. You're like those guys throwing pomegranates at Jeremiah, okay? Instead, be like, okay, maybe you're right. Tell me more. Swallow your pride. Because the reason why the Babylonians came, because Judah could not swallow their pride. They're like, no way, dude. We built the temple. Get off my back. Nothing's coming against us. Look at us. Look at this. God is here. And their pride ended up deceiving them to their own destruction. Now, later on in Jeremiah chapter 7, he describes what will happen to Judah if indeed they do not repent and turn from the wicked ways. He mentions this place called the Valley of Hinnom. Now, translated into Aramaic, it's known as Gihinnom, which was later translated into Greek, so third translation, into Gehenna, a term you might be familiar with because the New Testament is the word for hell. So in the Jewish mind, Gehenna was the place of eternal punishment of the wicked. It's actually the primary metaphor Jesus used to talk about final judgment. For Jesus, hell or Gehenna is final judgment reserved for those who, like Judah, persistently reject God's call to repentance. To put it another way, it's for those seeking false security and something other than faith in God's gracious provision so they can pursue their idols and continue in destructive ways of life. Sound familiar? Sadly, we live in a society where there are many people seeking false security and something other than faith in God's provision. There's many people who go to churches who put their trust in the fact that they go to that building, that they're associated with that group, that they're part of this organization, that they have this family name. Do you get it? Like, there are so many opportunities to put our identity attached to something false other than God. It's attaching ourselves to the created instead of the creator. That is a message we need to hear. It cannot be put in a false security. And there's another important connection with this passage that you don't want to miss. If you turn to Matthew 21, or I'll put up in the screen for you, in verse 12 and 13, Israel's back in the promised land. So now we're going to fast forward about 600 plus years. Okay, so, all right. So I'll tell you how it ends, right? They don't repent. Babylon comes, takes them away. That's where we get the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story. We all love it, right? It's like, I will not bow down to you. Go for it, you know? And then they're like literally standing in the midst of this hot furnace. They should be melting the skin off their bones. And they're just there, and they're like, they're not dying. And it's like, whoa, okay, everybody repent. We're going to this guy's God. I love it, you know? That story we know, okay? Now, that happened because the people didn't repent with the Babylon. But eventually they get back to the promised land, right? And we see here that they are there. The temple's now rebuilt. So they're like feeling pretty good about this. Hey, got the temple back, right? The empty worship is going on and sacrifices. Social justice is totally neglected in the land. And God's people have placed, again, a sense of false national security in the temple. Because that's where God is. 
despite being under the Roman rule, which, by the way, in the New Testament, Rome's oftentimes compared to the Babylonian Empire. The circumstances are very familiar. And in this context, Jesus, in Matthew chapter 21, Christmas time, Jesus born, baby, manger, grows up, 30, all right, here we go, 30 plus. Okay, he goes into this rebuilt temple. Keep in mind, this temple where everyone says, this is where God dwells, this is, this is our security, this is our place, do not mess with the temple. Jesus walks in, and he quotes something from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11. He says, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, right? So people could have their sacrifices. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. The same Jesus saying, this place you call the house, the dwelling place for God, I am telling you it is a den of robbers. It is a disgrace what you guys have done in this place. But there wouldn't have been an Israelite in the temple that day that missed what Jesus was saying through this symbolic reenactment. Yahweh was coming to destroy the temple as an act of judgment against Israel's empty religious practices and unfaithfulness. You know, but Jesus also offered an alternative message to all who were willing to listen to his words. His own body, the true temple of God, would be destroyed on the cross as the ultimate sacrifice for rebellious, covenant-breaking people and would be raised on the third day. So that all who trust in him as their true source of hope are given new hearts and new lives. These new lives result in the kind of things that God always wanted for Israel in the first place. True worship, acts of justice, obedience to his words. Now, Jeremiah is not all doom and gloom. This is Advent season, of course. She may be saying, Tyler, wow, thanks for the history, but where's the hope, man? I was feeling really good after we sang that song as the deer panteth. Now I'm like wondering if I need to be panting right here, repenting, you know, just what's going on? Don't worry, we're going to get there. So where's the hope, right? Where's the Maranatha? Where's the come Lord Jesus? Well, let's look at chapter 23 and 33, all right? Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. You see, God will honor his covenant with David, and there will be a new king coming, one who will reign wisely and with justice. He will do what is right, the very thing they couldn't figure out. You see, though Jesus offered himself as Israel's Messiah at his first advent, the final judgment of the prophecy awaits his second advent, immediately before his millennial reign. Now, Real quick, before you think I'm about to go off in Revelation on you, let me just give you a quick 
recap here. The millennial kingdom, the millennial reign, right? Let me just kind of simplify it. It's a title given to the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth. At the second coming or the second advent, these covenants that God made will be fulfilled as Israel is regathered from the nations, converted and restored to the land under the rule of the true Messiah. The Bible speaks of the conditions during this millennium reign as a perfect environment, physically and spiritually. It will be a time of peace, joy, and comfort. Now, we see similar words in Jeremiah 33 as we see in 23, almost identical in some ways. Again, a message of hope. Behold, the days are coming, starting verse 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Once you see, God does fulfill his promises, just not on our timetable. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Now listen to this. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, this prophecy connects directly to what the angel spoke to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Yet these words were spoken around 570, 580 B.C., like literally nearly 600 years prior, these words are spoken. The angel, the angel, by the way, shows up to Mary and says, hey, guess what? This is what's going to happen. And he says these very words. He will reign over the house of Jacob, of Israel forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. That's Jesus. That's the Messiah. That's the coming king. But there's also the restoration of God's dwelling place. Remember back to dwelling place, right? They put their hope in the temple, which was the dwelling place for God. The hope in the tabernacle. If we build it, he will come. Right? Like, if we build it, he will just be here magically, no matter what we do with our personal lives. You see that building? That's the temple. Yeah. Right? But there's... But the disconnect is so off. And here's what I want you to see real quick. For them to believe that everything was going to be okay, they would experience peace and hope and safety because they built the thing to God's specifications. But it was never about the building. It was about an obedience to God. But they put all their hope in the thing instead of in the person. Right? And that pattern continues today. And we're 2,600 years removed from Jeremiah saying these very things. And we still have that problem today. Putting our hope in the thing, in the government, in the company, in the cause, in the whatever, in the safety net, in the stock market, in this and that. And it's 
it's all the wrong places. It's in the person. <laughs> it's in him. But what's really cool here is that Jeremiah 33 and 23 are very similar, but there's one subtle difference I want you to see. Because there is a restoration of Jerusalem as God's dwelling place. You see, we see the phrase, the Lord is our righteousness. You may have seen that in those two passages. This phrase is seen in chapter 23, yet there's a subtle change in language to convey a different meaning. In 23, it's pictured the safety, Jeremiah pictures the safety of Israel and Judah through the ministry of the Messiah, of Jesus. However, by changing in chapter 33, Israel to Jerusalem, and by changing the preposition he to it, Jeremiah made the title, the Lord, is, uh, the Lord our righteousness, apply to the city of Jerusalem instead of to the Messiah. So what's the point? The city will take on the same characteristics as the Lord who will dwell within it. What's the larger point? The people will take on the same characteristics because they are the people inhabiting the city of the very person who came to rescue it. Which means one day there would be a new covenant people that would look like, act like, sound like, be in the indwelling of the very Messiah. So it's not just I have to go where the Messiah is in order to get healing or to get hope. Messiah comes to me. The Spirit lives in me. The same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead lives in me. The same Spirit who gave birth to the Virgin Mary to birth Jesus lives in me. The same Spirit who hovered over the waters of the sea of creation lives in me. That same Spirit who descended upon Christ when he came out of the River Jordan and dwelt and stayed with him, that Holy Spirit, not just a tiny little dove, that's just imagery, the Spirit of God, that same Spirit is the dwelling place. And the dwelling place is not in a building or in a weekend concert or missions conference. The dwelling place is in man and woman. The dwelling place is in a people. But when the people are now transformed by this holy God, they can't help but start transforming everything else. Right? And so the picture is, oh, people of God, if you understand that when you know me and get my ways, then everything you touch, every role you have, every responsibility should all ooze Jesus. It should all ooze Jesus. I literally was thinking about this the other morning. I was sitting there. I'm going to get off topic just for a minute, but I'll get back. I was looking at these poinsettias at Lowe's. It was like two for $3. Great deal. So I bought them. So I bought four. <laughs> they got me. They're on the carts right there. And it's like, you know, just get one. So I bought some poinsettias. Now, I was doing some studying years ago about poinsettias. And if you dig deep on poinsettias, there's some sort of pagan thing, ritual associated with poinsettias. Some of you guys probably know. And um, you can say the same thing with like a Christmas tree. And it's, oh, the Germanic tribes, you know, just, and this is to the God of whatever. You could, you could pick out lots of things. You know, I, sit, I was sitting there, and literally the thought crossed my mind. I was like, this is a beautiful little plant. And I said, somebody years ago hijacked the meaning of the poinsettia. But that person didn't create the poinsettia. I know the God who created the poinsettia. And he made it 
to do well in cold temperatures so that I can look at it. Right? Let me go a step further. My daughter Gwyneth loves making rainbows. And she's really good at it. Trust me. She makes good rainbows. She's working on it. And I got this room picture the other day, and I put them in my office. I was like, you know what? I know the rainbow has been hijacked. But you know what? No human being made the rainbow. Who made the rainbow? God made the rainbow. Why? As a sign that I would not demolish all of you for your rampant sin again. I will not flood the earth again. I'm going to save you. It's a promise. A rainbow is a promise from God that I will not destroy the earth again. That's the meaning of a rainbow. Just to be clear. So, when we look at anything, we have to dig deep and say, hold on a second. God has intentionality. He is trying to say something to me. I am caught up in the malaise and the modern day and the whatever. And it's like, dude, what are you doing? God knew what he's doing when he put man and woman together. God knew what he's doing when he said, I want families. God knew what he's doing when he said, I will have a city where the people cry out to my name because he knows enough people, enough mixture of them, you put them together, they're all loving God together with their different skill sets and minds and giftings. He knew he could create a place, a city on top of a hill, a place where people would dwell and where Jesus is oozing everywhere, everything we touch, everything we do, within we're in the business of redeeming and transforming things, right? Versus just, giving way and playing defense. I believe the Spirit of God is on us on the offensive. We are meant to say, no, we're gonna take back, right? But it's not in the same way. It's the sword of the Spirit, right? It's not in the sword of my hand. It's not, it's totally different. If you take it back with love and humility and grace and, 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 and serving people, this is how you take things back, is by getting to the roots. And I believe he is trying to say to us, this one day, there is a promise. There is a promise that people will dwell in a transformed place where peace, hope, and joy dwell. You know, Ezekiel's another prophet we're gonna look at next week, but Ezekiel chapter 37, he looks forward to the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven and declares, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them. And they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. Oh, I love that. They will be with him. Now, let's continue on. There's more hope. See, I told you Jeremiah was a positive guy. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? It's on their hearts. It's not on a notepad. It's not just in a book. It's here. 
You remember when the disciples were talking to Jesus in John 14, and he was sharing some things with them that were going to happen, and Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. He goes on to say, because if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The longing for God to dwell is not in a building. The longing for God to dwell is in Christ. When you know Christ, you know the Father. I want to share this story as we end. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Maybe this will illustrate it this way. A wealthy man had an enormous estate. And this estate included fine works of art, amongst other things. Well, he also had just one son. And the son had died when he was younger. And so the man grew his estate, had all of his wealth, and eventually he passed away. And so people came in to do the large estate sale. And they had an auction there as well for all the fine works of art that he had. Well, people came in from all around because they knew there was fine works of art like Picasso and other things that had come from different eras. And they thought, man, this is a gold mine of art. So people came in and they were prepared and they were ready to start the bidding process. Well, the auctioneer, he got up there and he said, all right, we got a lot of things today. We're going to get through them, but um, we have to start with this first painting. So he puts the painting up. All right, anybody want to bid on it? People are looking at it. Well, what is that? This doesn't look any, they're looking at their sheet. They're like, that's not even famous artist. Who drew that? And they're looking and people are like, hey, let's move on to the next stuff. Let's move on to all the good stuff. Come on. And he's like, nope, sorry. We have to bid on this one. This one's the first one that has to go. Well, everyone's looking, and some other guys stand up and say, come on, you're wasting our time. We drove in for all this. Let's go. I don't know. That's just some picture of some guy. We don't know. Let's move on. Well, a little old lady in the back, she kind of made her way forward. She couldn't see you very good, and she looked at this painting. She looked at it, and she was pretty poor, and she raised her hand and said, I'll, I'll buy it. She said, $5. The man looked, anyone else? $5. Going once. Twice, sold. Sold to the old lady. Said, all right, folks, that's it. Auction's over. People are like, wait, what? No, no, no. There's like 100 pieces of art here. We are not done. We just started. He said, it says right here, whoever buys the piece of art of my son gets everything. The little old lady was the nurse of the young boy and nursed him when, she, when he was little. She moved on, was older and pretty poor, and she heard that this man had died and came to the auction but couldn't see, and she noticed the picture of the son. Later on, she was asked, you know, why'd you get it? She said, I cherished that young boy, so I wanted to cherish him as long as I could. That's why I bought the painting. You see, when you get the son, you get the inheritance. Get everything. But if you bypass the sun for all the other fine works of art, for all the other stuff you could have, that in this world is way more worth it 
The value is way more. But you see, God's heart is not that. He said, I just, you got to get me. If you cherish me, I have everything. The floodgates, the barn doors, they're all yours. <laughs> but you've got to get me. I want us to stand as we close this morning. You know, the Israelites, they treasured the temple and their religion and their practices so much. But they treasured the temple more than God himself. This woman cherished the sun more than anything else. This Advent season, we have an opportunity to love and cherish the sun more than maybe we normally do. To put him in his rightful place. To remember that this Christmas season, amongst everything we're doing and the parties and fun things, that it's about him. You take him away, it's meaningless. It's actually Jesus is what gives meaning to giving and to celebrating. <laughs> so this morning, I just want to give us a moment here just to reflect and to invite us just to cherish the sun, to cherish Jesus. So just close your eyes just a moment. And I just want you to think about the time that he first came into your life. The first coming of Christ into your world. Just take a moment. I want you to think back to that moment when you heard the gospel or prayed a prayer or asked your parents a question or I don't know how it happened. But that time when you said, Jesus, yes, <laughs> come on in. I want you to reflect on that time because I believe that he wants to remind us of how he's already come into our lives. And wants to remind us of the immense peace that that brought. We thank you, Lord, for coming. We thank you for making a way thank you that we get to cherish you and that you're worth it. Lord, we pray that you would, would you bring that sense of peace back into our lives? And I believe that as we look at the Son, as we cherish Him, he, sometimes He'll reveal some things in our lives that, that need to go. He'll say, hey, I know you're looking at me, but with one eye you're looking at me and the other eye you're looking at this stuff in the world, why not give me both eyes? So what I pray for any of us, maybe all of us, just whatever the places are that we're cherishing other things or people or opportunities more than you, would you reveal it? And unlike maybe hard-hearted people 2,600 years ago and Jeremiah speaking, maybe we would be the ones that would repent and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I want to cherish you above everything else. Help me to see that again. Help me to put you front and center. So Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask you would graciously deal with us. 
but that we would get right again so that we would sense your nearness in a fresh way sense God dwelling in a fresh way again we pray Amen